Let's pray for a moment, please. Lord, um, you're here and you're good. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would knock away every barrier that would keep us from encountering you today. Lord, open our hearts, open our minds. Lord, open your scriptures to us. And Lord, fill my words. Above all else, we pray, Lord, lead us to Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So I want to start out this morning thinking about a few kind of folksy sayings that sound like they should be in the Bible, but they are not. And I bet you probably know most, if not all of these. For instance, God works in mysterious ways, not in the Bible. It's true, but it's not actually in the Bible. It, it comes as a paraphrase from a 19th century hymn written by the English poet William Cowper. How about this one? In fact, I bet you can finish it for me. Cleanliness is next to? Cleanliness. Not in the Bible. <laughs> sounds like a proverb, though, doesn't it? It sounds like it should be in the Bible. That actually was coined by John Wesley in a sermon that he wrote about how Christians dress. I guess you should be clean when you come to church. Now, here's another one that maybe is a little bit harder, but some of you know it. Certainly the older among us will know this one. Spare the rod. Spoil the child. Spoil the child. Not in the Bible. It actually, it actually comes from a Bible verse. It comes from the book of Proverbs, verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 24. The one who withholds or spares the rod is the one who hates his son. In other words, the parent who doesn't discipline their child doesn't actually love their child well. You guys know this one too. Finish this for me. God helps those not in the Bible. Now, here's the thing. At least half or more of you don't believe me when I say that's not in the Bible. And, and the reason I know this is because in 2017, Barna did a survey that found that 52% of practicing Christians strongly agreed that that one is in the Bible. But it really isn't. It was coined by an English politician in the 1600s named Algernon Sidney, and it was made really popular by Ben Franklin in Poor Richard's Almanac. And I got to say, God helps those who help themselves is a blatant contradiction of everything the Bible says. So that's a really bad one we need to get rid of. Literally, there are verses that say exactly the opposite. I'll give you one. Romans 5, 6 says, Christ died for us when we were unable to help ourselves. That is exactly the opposite. But that is the gospel. And if you will allow him, he will not only help you, but he will save you to the uttermost. But you got to let him. Now, one more, and you can finish this one too. God won't give you more than you can handle, not in the Bible. In fact, I would say that God, that God often gives you more than you can handle. He doesn't do it to hurt you. He doesn't do it to damage you. He does it so that he can reveal himself to you, so that he can grow you into his story, so that you can know who he is, so that you can have a faith in the one 
who actually can handle absolutely anything. And I would say that the gospel lesson that Laura read for us a few moments ago from Mark chapter 4 shows us exactly that God often does give us more than we can handle. So if you want to take out your scripture sheet, they're more like scripture cards today. Or if you've got a Bible app or you've got your Bible, or you could probably look on the screens. Let's take a look at the text starting in verse 35. On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. Now let's get a little bit of context. Jesus has been teaching all day on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. He's probably wiped out, you know, crowds were constantly there. He would often teach for probably hours at a time. And the Sea of Galilee isn't actually a saltwater sea, it's a freshwater lake. It's roughly 14 or 15 miles long. It's about seven to eight miles wide. It's 700 feet below sea level. And coming up out of the Sea of Galilee in the region around it are hills that move about 2,000 feet up. To the north is Mount Hermon, which is over 9,000 feet high and is often covered in snow. And so the cold air is coming down from the mountain and the warm air coming up from the sea do what, what they do around here too. They clash, creating huge thunderstorms massive squalls that can come up very quickly. Now, the Sea of Galilee is generally calm and tranquil most of the time, but it could become incredibly treacherous. Seas like 10 to 15 to even 20 feet high. Big waves. Sounds like good surf, but... And I think in that sense, it's a lot like life, right? Calm and tranquil a lot of the time, but with big storms that come often when you're least expecting them. And in this room right now, we've got people experiencing both of those things. Some of you are sailing through a season of calm and tranquility, and others are in the midst of a storm. Or maybe you're just coming out of a storm, or you see that perhaps there's a storm on the horizon. So let's go back to the text. Verse 37, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling but Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And so one of those storms springs up, and Mark says it's a great windstorm. In the Greek, it's the word mega. There's a mega windstorm. There's a mega squall that's breaking. Gale force winds. They're in the boat. It's a tiny sloop. This is a mega problem that they are facing. And I think while the text doesn't say it, it's not hard to imagine if you have ever been in a small boat in big seas, what the status was of most of those guys. Only four of them were fishermen, so the others are probably as green as green can be, and they're like jettisoning their falafel into the sea. <laughs> I mean, if you've ever been powerfully seasick you know it is miserable and you're useless half of them are laying in the boat in the water as it's coming over the side and they just don't care oh my god i'm gonna die anybody been there you hadn't boated very much then goodness so some of them are sick they're all miserable 
and they're all panicking. They're terrified. And Jesus is doing nothing. Nothing. He's asleep. And Mark tells us in this really fascinating detail that points to the reality of this story. And if you're one of those people who's like, yeah, can you believe these miracle stories? This is one of the, the points that you need to land on and go, oh, this is really true. He says, Jesus is asleep in the stern of the boat on a cushion. There's no reason for the cushion to be in there unless somebody reported that to Mark. Oh, yeah, he was on a cushion. And like, you wouldn't make that up. That's real stuff. What did the disciples say to him as he's there in the stern on the cushion fast asleep at the end of verse 38? Don't you care that we're perishing? In other words, why are you sleeping at a time like this? Oy vey! Why aren't you doing something? Don't you care, Jesus? Isn't that what happens to so many of us when all heck breaks loose, when the storms are raging around us, when life is spinning out of control in the midst of some catastrophe, some sickness, some report back from the doctor of a diagnosis you hoped you would never have, or when a child's sick or a friend you deeply love is just, just life is collapsing. Where are you, God? Don't you care? Are you asleep? See, God will give you things that are too big for you to handle. It doesn't mean he causes all of them, and he doesn't do it to hurt you. And, and it doesn't happen because somehow he gets some kind of perverse joy in seeing you suffer, seeing you miserable. That is a bad view of God. It's because that when things seem too big... When they're too much to handle, there's several things that happen. The first is this. We recognize that we are not in control of our own lives. Despite what the pithy saying is, I, I'm the captain of my own ship and the master of my own destiny. No, 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 that's not true. And of course, I think that's part of why everybody's so angry in our culture right now. It's more than politics. It's more than vaccinations. It's more to, than inconvenience. It's because everybody is out of control. And we're not used to feeling and seeing the truth that we're out of control. And so people lash out when they're out of control. And unfortunately, we aren't seeing a lot of people turn to the Lord. They're just getting angrier and angrier and angrier. Now, a second thing happens when things are too big to deal with, too much for us to handle, is that those diseased, unbelieving parts of our hearts toward God surface. That is the time when what you really believe comes up. Maybe God isn't powerful. Maybe God isn't good. Maybe God isn't real at all. Maybe God doesn't care about me. Maybe God doesn't really love me. They come up in those times. What you really believe tends to surface in the crisis. And thirdly, when things are too big, like when we're in these places that are just way over our heads, what, what we see what we see is where our lack of experience of Jesus Christ 
limits our belief in Jesus Christ. Our lack of experience limits our belief. Like his word and his directions to them are clear. We're going to the other side of the lake. But they've never experienced what they're going through right now, so they're having a hard time believing his word. They've never experienced this before. So they're having a hard time trusting him in the midst of it. What they really believe is starting to come out. The lack of experience is limiting his word. So it works like this in our life. Oh yeah, I believe in healing, but then do we pray for healing? Or is that our last, is that our last ditch effort? We say Jesus is Lord, but then chaos reigns and we bite the heads off of everybody around us and have no peace at all. We say, yes, I believe God forgives, but then we're in a situation where somebody has wronged and hurt us and we're called to forgive in the same way that we have been forgiven. And then it's like, yeah, I don't know. We'll go back to the text. Verse 39, and Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Jesus commands and it is so. He doesn't work himself up. He doesn't pray and fast for three weeks or 40 days or whatever. He doesn't even call on the name of God, Yahweh, Almighty. He speaks, and it is. He commands, and it is so. Peace, be still. He's acting. He's acting from his true identity. He is man. He is God. And, and it really kind of sounds like a parent, you know, disciplining a child that's, that's losing it, right, or out of control. Um, so I remember, maybe some of you have been this person or in this situation. I've been this dad, so somebody's gotten out of their seat in the car, and they're climbing over to get at their sister or brother, and you turn over and you say, sit down, right, dad voice. Sounds some version of that. Hopefully yours is godlier than mine. And it's this word of command. You're about to die, sit down. And it is so. With certain kids. But it's, it's that kind of thing that's going on here. And what happens? The wind ceased. Okay, that's fine. You could say, well, maybe that's a coincidence. You know, maybe Jesus said it and the wind's coincidentally you know, stopped blowing, but there's more. It says there was a, everybody say great. great. There was a great calm. It's the same word, mega. There's a mega calm. There's a mega calm. It's not just a little calm. This is flat water. This is still water. This is dead calm. This is see your reflection because it's so smooth and the moon's out and it's shining up at you. You might say, oh, coincidence, Jesus speaks these words and the wind stops. But there is no way Jesus could speak these words and the wind and the water stop. And we get this because of where we live. Think about October. We've got a hurricane coming up the coast. And it passes by and the wind has stopped. 
the water doesn't stop when the hurricane has come by. Oh, it will eventually. But actually, the waves are better, frankly, for us surfers out there, right? It's on the backside of the hurricane when the wind is dropping that the waves are fantastic. So we understand this. They don't go in sync, but when Jesus speaks, peace, be still, it is so. The wind and the waves stop, and there is a great calm. Now think back to our His Story series. If you've been with us in the fall, remember other places where we saw the water behaving in accordance to the command of God? Remember the Exodus? Remember the Red Sea? The Hebrews are fleeing from the Egyptians and God causes the water to stack up so that they can go through on dry ground. And when they've gone through and the Egyptians who are going to kill his people and destroy the seed and the line of Messiah are coming through the water, God causes the waters to recede and drown all the enemies who are seeking to kill his people. Sounds a lot like that. And there are certainly others the ancient people understood that only God had power over the sea. That's why in that lesson we heard from Job, right? That God is now talking to Job after Job spent lots of chapters questioning God and crying out, what's going on? My life's a disaster. And Job says, or God says to Job, like, were you there when I laid out the foundations of the world? Were you there when I set limits on the sea? God sets limits on the sea. And that's what we see Jesus doing there. He is absolutely a man. He's asleep on a cushion, but he is God who has entered in. God who has come among us. He is Lord, Lord of storms, Lord of circumstances, Lord of history, Lord of heaven and earth. And then Jesus says to these guys, and I think he probably says this to you and to me also, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? He wants them to see who he really is, and he wants you to see who he really is. He wants them to see what they really believe about him. He wants you to see what you really believe about him, not to smash you, but to reveal himself to you to free you from the places that are diseased and limiting his work in your life. He does allow people to go through storms. And he will allow you to go through storms. And we've got to get that in our heads. We've got to understand it, not to be afraid of the storms, but so that we're not surprised and panicking when we're in the midst of them. I kind of feel like half the church, not necessarily ours, has really missed that in the pandemic. Maybe 70% of the church. I don't know how much. But man, it seemed like faith crumbled rather than raised up. And I'm not talking about being foolish. I'm not talking about political stuff. I'm just talking about rock solid. He's in this with us. He's got us. He will not let us go. And he will see us through and he will be there on the other side because he is the Lord of history. And he wants you to know that he loves you. And sometimes he'll make the storm go away. Sometimes he wants to reveal his love to you right in the middle of it. And I think 
It's often in the middle of those storms when we recognize his love for us that it just absolutely becomes so real in us. He has not left you, and he will never leave you. You can have peace in the storm. Verse 41, Mark writes this, and they were filled with great fear. There's our word again. And said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Mega. They're stunned. They're overwhelmed. I mean, come on. They've never been through this before. That's often what it's like when you walk with God and he does something that suddenly makes you have to reevaluate what you believe theologically about him. Because you've put this little box in place, carefully crafted doctrinal box, and I'm, I'm all good with doctrine. It's just that he sometimes moves in ways that make us go, hmm, <laughs> maybe I'm trying to limit you through control through my doctrine. Don't hear that as a knock on doctrine. I'm just going to emphasize that. Because some people get kind of weird about this stuff. But, but we need to understand he's God. He does things different than we would do them. And so they're stunned and they're overwhelmed and they're amazed and they're captivated. And they can't help but talk with each other and they're going to talk with a whole lot of other people about Jesus. And why is that? Because whenever you're captivated with something or someone, you can't help but talk about them. I think about it, right? The bride, they've gotten married. The photographer who's really worked hard has got 10,000 pictures from the wedding. And a bride is willing to look at all 10,000 of them and let anybody else see them who's around. Why? Because she's captivated by the event. Think about this. The new grandparents will surely get this one. Right? Somebody's a new grandparent. You say, hey, do you have a picture of your grandchild? And they break out their phone and there's 19 of them. And they show you all the reasons why their child drools better than every other child on the planet. Right? Even the child's poop is better than every other child's. It's, right? They're captivated. They can't help but talking about what they are amazed by and what they love. God will give you more than you can handle. But it's so that you can know who Jesus really is. And so that you can trust him Trust his authority, trust his word above everything else, but also so that you'll be captivated by him, so that you'll be willing to not just keep it private on Sunday morning, but to share it with anybody who will listen and maybe a few who won't. Because you can't help but talk to people about what you're captivated by, what astounds you. How long has it been since Jesus has astounded you? Because I think a lot of our hearts have gotten a little bit hard through the pandemic. And that first love is in danger of becoming lukewarm. Call on the Holy Spirit to renew your heart, to renew our church, to renew the church in a macro sense. Now, one last thing, and I'm totally indebted to Tim Keller and his book, King's Cross, for this. Mark is very intentional in the way that he lays out this account. And it closely parallels and mirrors somebody else in Scripture. Jonah. Remember the story of Jonah? We had him briefly in our His Story series. Now think about it. Both Jesus and Jonah were in a boat. Both boats are in storms and they're about to sink. 
Both crews of sailors are panicking. They're terrified. Both Jesus and Jonah are asleep in the boat. In both stories, the sailors wake them up and cry, we're going to die. We're perishing. And in both accounts, there is a miraculous intervention and the sea is calm. In both of the stories, the sailors are even more afraid after the miracle comes than they were before. But there is a difference. There's a big difference. In the middle of the storm, Jonah said this, there's only one thing to do. If I perish, you survive. If I die, you will live. And they threw Jonah into the sea. But that doesn't happen in Mark's gospel, does it? At least not in the same way. There's a time delay, if you will. Remember, Jesus will later say, one greater than Jonah is here, which is another way of him saying, I am the true Jonah. I am the real Jonah. What he meant was that one day, one day he would be thrown into a sea, but not into the Sea of Galilee. He would be thrown into the sea of God's wrath and judgment against sin. And he would willingly go into that sea. And he would willingly face the fullness of God's wrath, the fullness of divine justice against your sin and my sin. But he wouldn't come out alive at first. He so fully took that wrath, he so fully bore that justice that he died. And he went down into the depths. Far, far deeper, if you will, than the Sea of Galilee. He went into the depths of death and hell itself. But it could not hold him. It could not hold him. And he was raised to life. And he gives that life freely to everyone who trusts in him. So I want to say this especially if you're in the midst of a storm or when you go through a storm. Look to the cross. See how much he loved you? Do you care about me? Oh, I care about you. I bore everything for you. I have taken it all for you. I have swallowed death on your behalf. And I have been raised to new life. If he would do that for you, then surely he can handle the other storms, the day in and day out storms that you and I face. Don't be afraid. Trust him. He loves you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, there's pain today and there's fear and there's doubt and we pray that you would meet us in it. And Lord, you would begin to reveal yourself to us through it. Not to shame us, but to deliver us. To let truth sink deeply inside of us, Lord. To deliver from sin and death to meet us and show us who you really are. Lord, you are God not only of the seas, but of heaven and earth. And we thank you, Jesus, that you call us and make us your own. We pray you'll do that today and in the days to come. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.